Amen and amen. For those of you who are joining us via Facebook Live, we're glad that you're here. We're going through a, a, a series that we've called Servant King. It's our journey through the book of Mark. And uh, we are on the home stretch now, and I am excited. We've been in Mark since 2015, taking a few breaks here and there, but um, over the next few weeks, we're going to wrap, wrap it up. I'm excited to tell you that there are some speakers that you've heard before that will be dishing the gospel here over the next few weeks as your pastor goes into um, shoulder surgery. And uh, I'm excited to see what God's going to say through you guys, man. It's going to be really awesome. So, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to pick up at verse 53, <clears throat> and we're going to finish the chapter. Now, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, all right? And, but I'm going to let you out of here in plenty of time to see the Super Bowl, all right? So that we all can root for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. Yes! Yes, how many Eagle fans in the house? Everybody, say, who's, who's, gonna, who's rooting for the Eagles today? Yay! Who's rooting for the Patriots? Yeah. What? Commercials? Oh. For those of you listening via Facebook Live, we are followers of Jesus Christ, I want to assure you. We are. We just love to have fun. You know, I love good courtroom drama. I always have. And uh, I don't know, there's something about a good attorney in the courtroom that just resonates with me. And I want you to take a look at a couple, some of these pictures here. And, and some of these will be familiar. You guys remember that guy? What's his name? Matlock. Matlock. Matlock would have you wrapped up and you would think that you're getting away, but you weren't. And that's that look right there. I got you. Isn't it? I love Matlock. One of my favorites is this guy. <laughs> yeah, because, because Columbo, you look at him and you think this guy doesn't have a clue, and you take him for granted, and next thing you know, you're going off to prison because Columbo's got you, right? And then there's this guy, Ironside. Now, some of you don't remember Ironside. This was the first lawyer or someone of significance that was that was depicted with a handicap because back in the day, having a handicap was like a sign of weakness. There's something wrong with you. You were inferior. This guy broke that stereotype. Michael Ironside, I think his name is Michael Ironside, but he's Ironside anyway. Great lawyer to Roman Burr. But that is the first and long standing uh, defense attorney. You know, in the courtroom, Perry Mason, because if you were lying, Perry Mason was going to catch you in your lie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But now this one's mine. This is one I like right here. Watch this now. <laughs> That's my favorite, man. I, I love Law and Order because what I love about Law and Order, and leave that picture up for a while, Nate. What I love about Law and Order is that many times in Law and Order, you've got these two trials going on simultaneously. You've got the person that's sitting in the courtroom on trial, 
And then you've got the one that's actually not in the courtroom that's guilty, that they're actually trying to find circumstantial evidence for. You guys understand what I'm saying? And so, and so for me, I'm watching Law and Order, especially when this criminal is just, just a raunchy criminal. I'm like, man, I just, I just want him to get the guy. I just want him to get that guy. You know? You with me on that? Because hmm. he's the one that's guilty. You know, the perfectly spotless and sinless Jesus in a lot of ways mirrors what takes place in a courtroom as he goes to court on trial. Because remember this, Jesus can't go to the cross until he goes through the courtroom first. But what I don't want you to miss is that at the very same time, another trial is gearing up outside the courtroom. And so today, I, wanna, I want you to walk with me as I, as I walk you through a tale of two trials. A tale of two trials. Beginning at verse 23 of chapter 14 of Mark. Are you there? Now, I'm going to go through the end of the chapter, but I'm, gonna, we're gonna, I'm not going to like do a, an expository line by line. I'm going to do a narrative, much like I did last week, but this week we are going to read a lot of the verses. So here we go. Begin at verse 54. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, oh man, and he was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. So in verse 53 here, we're introduced to, to two separate but connected scenes. In one, Jesus is in a courtroom being tried, and he knows that he's being tried. In the other, Peter is being tried, and he has no idea He's on trial, and so we find him inquisitively warming himself by the fire. Two-minute warning. You know, today's the Super Bowl, I said earlier, and I hope it's a good game, because if it's a good game, when it's the final two minutes, you get the two-minute warning. And if it's a close game, the two-minute warning symbolizes that this thing is about to wrap up, man. This, this regulation period is about to wrap up. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Because that's so good. God gave me that this morning. This regulation period, this period of rules and laws and regulations, It's about to wrap up, man. This game's about to be over. How do I know? Because in, in verses 27 and 28 in this chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, you are going to fall away. Remember I told you that last week? That, that verb, fall away, when it's translated, presents the idea of temporarily losing courage. Jesus goes on to quote the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 13, beginning of verse 7. says, for it is written, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But then Jesus goes on to say, but after I am raised, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Here's the point that Jesus is making. I said it last week. I want to say it again. Jesus is saying, when I am crucified, you are going to temporarily lose courage. 
But I promise you that this is not the end. I'm going to rise again, and guess what? I'm going to go before you into Galilee. I'm already way out in front of you on this thing. So what's Jesus saying here, really? I know you. I have a vested interest in your life. Are you listening to me? Because this applies to us. He died for all of us, didn't he? I know you. He knows your name. Randall, he knows your name. He has a vested interest in you, Matthew. <laughs> he says, I'm about to give my life for you, Levon. And I'm not willing to give up on you, Malcolm. Not. So you have a critical assignment that you have got to fulfill. So no matter what you see, no matter how you feel, no matter what trials you're going through, even if you lose courage, I want you to know something. This is not the end of your story. There's more. So it's taken three years of aggravation and annoyance with Jesus, and now the religious and political leaders have their man. They finally got him. They've arrested Jesus and they brought him to be tried. This is one, this is the, the second of two, the second of six trials that Jesus is going to have to go through. The first one, it's not mentioned here. This is Mark's gospel. The first one is mentioned in John's gospel where the, the, the mob brings Jesus before Annas. And now in Mark's gospel, they brought him before the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas. <laughs> this is interesting. The role of the high priest is a position of both religious and political power. And this is what I didn't know. The people of Israel didn't have a vote on who occupied that position. You think that they did, but they didn't. The high priest was elected and approved by the Roman government. You see, the Romans wanted someone in position, in that position of authority that could play ball with them. Because they realized that Israel was a potential political and religious powder keg. And so they needed someone that could keep the peace on both sides. So, so Caiaphas, much like his father before him, was postured as someone who would uphold God's law, but in reality, he was a pawn for the Roman government, a pawn to maintain peace between Rome and the Jews. And in exchange, this man was, was, was given the opportunity to enjoy religious power and political prestige that he held over the people of Israel. And Jesus had become a threat to Caiaphas' power. And so Caiaphas and the other religious leaders of their day sought to put Jesus away by any means necessary. And this is what I don't want you to miss because this is just crazy. You know, the trial of Jesus was wrong on many fronts. I'm just going to give you three. 
In Jewish culture, you're not supposed to conduct a capital trial at night. This was in the middle of the night. You're not supposed to conduct a trial during the Jewish feast. This is Passover. You're not supposed to conduct a trial without others who can defend the defendant there to support him. Jesus had no one. And so here's what has happened. They assemble a kangaroo court. You know what a kangaroo court is? This is the official Webster definition of a kangaroo court. Any unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone regarded, especially without good evidence, as, a, as guilty of a crime or misdemeanor. So, so they assemble this, this kangaroo court comprised of elders and, and Pharisees and scribes and the teachers of the law. Because these were the people that would have to be present in order to try someone for a crime punishable by death or capital punishment in Jewish culture. So the players were in place. <laughs> and they were all conspiring to convict Jesus. Oh, this is so crazy. Before he enters the courtroom. Okay, so I just showed you Law and Order and, and Perry Mason and all that stuff, and you guys get how the courtroom was supposed to run, right? What they did with Jesus would have been like this. It'd be like you or me being escorted into the courtroom only to find the judge and the jury huddled together in a corner conspiring to condemn us. And we walk in, and they go, okay, let's just get this party started, Right? If we had an attorney, what would be the first thing that our attorney would say? Huh? Objection, Your Honor. If I say objection, Your Honor. That's exactly what would happen. But Jesus didn't have anybody to defend him. And here's what's going on here. This kangaroo court knows that they have no case against Jesus so in a feeble attempt, they try to manipulate some evidence. I call it feeble because if you're going to tell a lie, you need to get your facts straight first. Right? Okay, I have seven siblings. I have, there's eight of us, right? And how many, mom, I know mom and dad, you're probably watching this, so I'm about to tell on everybody, but I'm not going to tell you who did what. It's going to just... Get that out of the way. But, you know, when you have a house full of kids living in the country, full of like, and like five boys. So, you know, we was like rowdy, man. And stuff got broke all the time, right? But we would, get our, we would come together and get our stories together, right? So that when we went to mom and dad, our stories would be straight. My wife said, you just lie. But listen, it's crazy because my dad is like Perry Mason. My dad would be like, Wayne, you go over here in that room. Diane, you go in that room. Sam, you sit over here in the living room. Herb, you sit over here in the living room. Denise, you go outside and play. Greg, come here. What was he doing? He was separating everybody so we couldn't, you know, keep our stories together. That's what the police do. You would think for a second if you just 
think these people would have had their stories together when they got in the courtroom with Jesus. This is Jesus, man. I'm just yelling. I'm sorry. This is just, <laughs> this is just, this is so funny to me. It's funny because we're on the other side of it. Funny because we know the end of the story. We are the redeemed. Look at verse 55 through 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Because here's what's interesting. Jesus does make this statement, but he wasn't talking about the temple that they, you know, the physical temple. He was talking about himself. He said, you can destroy this temple, this thing right here. But I'll tell you, listen, in three days, I'm going to come back stronger than you could ever imagine. <laughs> they had no idea. They had no idea what was about to hit them. Paul, Paul echoes that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood what they were doing. They didn't understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> so the question is asked of the high priest. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him straight up, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, in the synoptic gospels, John's gospel is different, but in the synoptic gospels, the only time we see Jesus speak is when he is talking about his identity. And I think Jesus here is making it really, really clear. He says, I am. Heard that before? Yeah, somebody said it. I am. And further, you're going you, you're gonna to see the Son of Man coming. He's going to be seated on the right hand of the Father, and he's going to be coming in the clouds of heaven. You're going to see it. And this is where it gets ugly. Because verse 65 and following tell us that the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? We have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, and they began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. Guards received him with blows. And through all of this, Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't murmur. He doesn't complain. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in, the, in, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, 
the innocent says nothing to defend himself. <laughs> Yet outside the courtroom of the high priest, there's a second trial that's about to take place. Let me back up for a second. I've been in a courtroom with a lawyer, and we were told, you know, you don't, don't say nothing, don't really give any facial expressions, you know, just, just act like you're innocent because you are. But man, I'll tell you, there's a few times I wanted to just jump up and woo! Some of the stuff they were saying about my wife and I, and we knew it wasn't true. Now imagine, I'm going to tell you what would have happened. Because I ain't been saved all my life. All right. If I had to walk to the same courtroom, same scenario, without an attorney, they pr I, we probably wouldn't have made it through the trial, Rob. Because I would have what you supposed to say, Your Honor? Objections? Is that what it is? Look, no, they're lying. They're lying on me. I'd have had something to say. Y'all okay, look at me like, like you wouldn't have something to say if you were in the same spot. You would, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you try to defend yourself? <laughs> Jesus was innocent. He didn't say a word. But Peter, on the other hand, was guilty as charged, and he had a whole lot to say. Three strikes. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, Hey, you're also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, Look, I neither, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you mean. And then he went out into the gateway. Strike one. And remember, Jesus had already told Peter back in verse 30 of this chapter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, hey, hey man, this man, he's one of them. But Peter, Peter I'm not no, it's not me, man. I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. Strike two. You know, I use a lot of sports metaphors because I love sports. I love those, I love the, the, the classic pitcher-batter duo, you know, where the pitcher is like this, you know, he's doing the thing. And before they used to have the stuff, the tar that you could put under your hat, but now they started checking all that stuff out because I changed the trajectory of the ball. I'm just really getting all, I'm getting like way out, but just bear with me, just, just bear with me. So, so they, you know, they're there and they're doing the thing. And the pitcher, he's staring them down. And I love this. I, I still don't know what this means. I know you know what it means, Eric. The pitcher goes, The batter steps up to the batter's cage. He's like. Swap, strike one. Swap, strike two. Swap, strike three. You know what happens when the, when the batter doesn't like the call of the umpire? What's the first thing they do? They get mad and just start arguing. 
And you see them, they all up in like this, you know, and they, 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 they mute it because the guys, most of them don't know Jesus too well. So, so, <laughs> so and they're probably saying some unsightly things, right? So they're all up in each other's faces arguing. Strike two, Peter. You're arguing, brother. Strike two. Strike two. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man whom you speak. How many of you will agree with me that fear will make you do some irrational things? Fear will make you do some irrational things, man. Fear drives people to play. I, got, I took this term from Lee Hudson a long time ago, and I think probably everybody in the world has heard me say it, and they, and they probably use it. Lee, thank you for giving me, giving me this. Fear will make you play movies in your head. Fear will make you rationalize things that you think are going to occur that there's probably very little likelihood that they will occur. Fear will do that, won't it? Peter's acting out of fear. As long as you and I live, there are going to be opportunities to fear, family. Fear is part of life. It's natural for us to experience fear from time to time. Truth is, healthy fear is good for us. Healthy fear. Little Johnny, don't put your hand on that stove. Or, or yesterday, I'm walking through the parking lot at ACC, um, Anchorage City Church, and I have my Sunday school shoes on. You guys know what the Sunday school shoes are? They're kind of like these, but these got some grippers on. I have, like, my real Sunday school shoes on. It's got the leather bottoms. I don't know what I was thinking, Mike. But I'm walking across that parking lot with fear and trepidation. Because like Every step, I'm like, hey. <laughs> That's healthy, man. That's healthy fear, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> listen, though, listen. I don't want you to miss this. We are spiritually unhealthy when we are driven by fear instead of living by faith. I love the way Paul says it in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. And of love and of a sound mind. You and I don't have to live in fear if the Spirit of God is on the inside of us. That's a good place to say amen. Y'all make me preach hard today. I tell you. And immediately, verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and listen to what Peter does. He breaks down, and he weeps. Strike three. So here's Peter, this bold man that a few hours earlier told Jesus, I don't care what happens, I will never deny you. And within 24 hours, within 12 hours, he had broken that promise. 
And man, this grips me every time I think about it. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, that in that moment that, that Peter did that, they were bringing Jesus out. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter when he said it. Here's the truth, though. I don't believe there was a look of anger or disgust. I believe that just as Jesus called Judas his friend in the garden, he gave Peter a, a look of a true friend, the way that a friend would look at a beloved, someone that they really loved. Strike three, but Peter, you're not out. And here's why. Because Peter had the right response. What Peter does next speaks to, to the heart of every follower of Christ, and, and, and it speaks to how we need to process things the moment. See, you got to go through the process before you can get to the promise. It speaks to the process that we need to go through the moment we find ourselves caught in sin. Peter broke down and wept. He was filled with remorse. He realized what he had done, and he was heartbroken. And listen to what the psalmist says in Psalms chapter 51, verse 7. A broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. God wants us to be brokenhearted over our sin. <laughs> hey, I, if you're brokenhearted, I can work with that. I believe that Jesus knew that Peter was going to be brokenhearted. He said, I can work with that. Here's why I believe that he knew that. Look at this. Look at this. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, and I love what Luke says here, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Watch this now. Watch this. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. Not, listen, Levon, not if you will turn it, when you turn again. It's when you will turn again. <laughs> They're saying in my notes, man, but Pelzetta just drove it out of the park today. Listen. Jesus knew Peter was going to have to go through the process before he got to the promise. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew that he would respond to his failure with brokenheartedness. Matter of fact, he was counting on it. He was counting on, I can work with that. Watch this now. I can build on that. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Simon Peter responds, Peter said this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, listen to this now, this is important. I tell you, Peter, 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I used to get so happy when I heard that. Woo! Praise God, Jesus! I used to get happy because, you know, we, used to, we, we taught that, that what Jesus was doing was setting Peter straight. He's like, you're the little rock, I'm the big rock, and on myself I'm going to build the church. That's true. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This just blessed me when I started studying this. I was like, man, God, woo. Jesus' wordplay here in Peter's name is significant. In the Greek, Petros, Peter is a masculine singular noun that refers to Peter as a singular rock. Upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petra is feminine. And though the two are, are from the same family, they're, 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 they're related, they're hugely different. The feminine form is understood to represent bedrock or a rock quarry. And so I believe that it's reasonable to interpret this passage as many theologians have. Jesus stating to Peter that you're one rock amongst a rock quarry. And it's upon this quarry of disciples and their understanding of your confession that I'm going to build my church. Show me what you mean, Pastor. Let me show you. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. Look what Peter says. And as you come to him, a living stone. Everybody say living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But that's not it. That's not all. This interpretation also fits with what the Apostle Paul makes, says in his statement in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following. And this is coming out of the NIV because I like it better than the NIV. It says, God's household is built on the foundation <laughs> on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord a dwelling which God lives by his spirit see when Jesus spoke to the disciples here at Caesarea Philippi he didn't expect them to have the full picture of the church. This was the first time they'd ever used, heard him use the word church. Peter and the other disciples had no idea that this church, this, this rock quarry of disciples that Jesus spoke of, a few days later would represent 50% of the Roman Empire. That is just so cool. You 
destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it again into a community of believers who will operate in my authority and cannot be stopped. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you and I are part of that rock quarry that Jesus died for. Lee, you can come to the, to the guitar if you would. Here are the takeaways I want you to take away from this, this message today. I'm not going to expound on these very much at all. I just want you to think about them. Life is filled with trials and broken promises. You might be going through a trial right now. Or maybe you've had your heart broken because a promise that wasn't kept. Our character is defined by how we respond to failures. A broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. Will you bow up in the face of failure? Will you melt? Not allow the Holy Spirit's power in you to recover? Or will you respond like Peter with a broken heart? God can work with that. He can build on that. See, our failures are not the end of the story. As a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to live in fear because the greater one has already paid the price for us not to have the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And finally, I made this statement last week. I'm going to make it again this week. Hear me. Hear me. There is nothing that you have ever done, ever, that Jesus cannot forgive. Some of you in here, you're hearing that and you think I'm talking about you. But in the not too distant future, God's going to send you to someone who is broken because of something that they've done. And you need to look them in the eyes and tell them, listen, there is nothing that you have ever done that Jesus can't forgive you for. Ask Peter. Peter.